Hey guys, hope you're doing well. Uh, it is officially April 21st and we are in our last unit together. This is such an awesome unit. I love teaching this unit. I wish uh, we could be in the classroom, but we will do the best that we can. So if you haven't opened up the PowerPoint notes that go along with this podcast, um, go ahead and do so because I think it'll make everything a lot make a lot more sense. Um, but basically, um, what we're going to start with is just kind of a recap, looking at you know the end of the Second World War, you know some lasting legacies, and just an enormous amount of human suffering. Fifty million dead, um, over twenty million homeless. You know this is a result of just mass amounts of carpet bombing, um, campaigns against civilians, starvation, disease. You know, we had the Holocaust. We had two bombs dropped. Um, also we have the decline of colonial powers, um, around the entire world. The great legacy of world war II is around the entire world. Colonies had been agitating for freedom prior to world war II. World war II is kind of like that final blow of, these European countries have no money. They have to focus on rebuilding themselves and they need to make, they need to prioritize and the new governments need to prioritize. Do we send troops in to put down these rebellions? Okay. But does that really fit into the, the, the mentality of post-World War II world? So it's really, it's, it's a fascinating time period to study. Um, I'm going to go at, take you in depth as much in depth as possible. Um, I love this again, being repetitive now. I love this time period and I, I hope you do too. I hope you learn a lot. Um, what I have on here is basically you can see it's, it's with, within days of world war two, the world plunged into another conflict and we call this conflict the cold war. It wasn't a war and, and it was cold because it wasn't a war. Um, there's gonna be a lot of proxy wars, um, and basically the, the powers at B are, if you look at, at the PowerPoint, that you got the blue, the you know, democratic world, and then you have the Soviet Union, the communist world. And Churchill, before World War II had even ended, Churchill gave this like epic speech about an iron curtain descending across Europe. And you can see the political cartoon at the top. Uh, um, uh, at the top. You know, this Iron Curtain basically dividing the East and the West. And that's this, this illusion that I'm going to take you forward with. Um, the three war conferences that are very important, uh, the Tehran Conference, if you don't remember what that was, it was in 1943. Uh, and it was just think of what was happening in 1943 in the war. Uh, there was an agreement that there will be a French invasion. We just don't know when. Um, Stalin was agreeing to help the Jap- um, fight the Japanese. Uh, Stalin wanted to talk again about Poland. Um, there was talk about dividing up Germany and the talk of the UN. The Yalta Conference in 1945, Stalin promised free elections, and it was definitely going to be a divided Germany into zones, and the Germans would be paying reparations. And then our final conference was the Potsdam Conference in 1945. And if you recall, this is the one Truman's at because um, FDR had died. And uh, Atle and Stalin were at this conference. This is the one that uh, Truman got news of the atomic bomb. Um, also, this is this is the one that Stalin was like, "Yeah, I'm going to send troops into Japan." So this is really really important um, because this is also if we had if we if we were in class, I would I work have y'all talk about this, but but Stalin or 
FDR really felt like he had a relationship, a connection with Stalin. Truman hated the man, like hated Stalin. All right. And so this is such a, in my opinion, these few months in 1945, these summer months are such pivotal months internationally. The way Truman uh, reacts with Stalin is so important moving forward. And then I know I'm going on a branch here. She can say, I'm going to have a hard time keeping this down to 10 minutes. But uh, the way that Truman reacts with issues with decolonizations, particularly with Vietnam, just, I mean, epic, epic. Um, so anyway, those are our four conferences. Um, basically, when we're looking at the world at this time period, we're looking at at it from many points of view, but for time, like sake of time, we're going to look at two perspectives and guess what? I'm sure you're surprised if we were in class, this would be a debate, but who started the cold war? Who is to blame for the start of the cold war? Right. You know, from the Soviet perspective, half of you would be arguing from the Soviet perspective, the Soviet perspective, basically the Soviets say that democracies traditionally are hostile towards communism. And they're going to talk about the Archangel expedition of World War One. You know, they're also going to bring up that the United States did not officially recognize the Soviet Union as an international entity until 1933. That's a decade after they were a thing. Um, he's also bitter because he's, you know, he's D-Day didn't happen fast enough. He had been begging for that other friend to open for years. Um, he was salty that he was um, froze out of the atomic bomb project. Um, he, you know, he and and then with the 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 Eastern Bloc states that he's going to create is he's basically saying he's he needs protection. Look at history. Napoleon invaded through it, Russia that way. Hitler invaded. He needs he needs that protection. Now, from an American perspective. Um, America, we're going to argue that, you know, we don't recognize a government that's created by force. Uh, Stalin broke his promises of, of all the, all the war conferences. Um, and also this, this whole concept of, you know, being tough with communism, being tough with, uh, Stalin. And, um, so basically that's kind of, that's kind of the two perspectives. It, I mean, I did that in two minutes. It'd been a much more, outstanding conversation if, 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 if y'all brought it in and it, you know, if you have time, really look at the two perspectives, the Soviet perspective and the American perspective, cause it really is a fascinating, and I don't think there's a clear side that wins and, uh, do me a favor if you can. And I'd love, I'd love, 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 love to hear from you. If right now you say it's a hundred percent, it was started by the Americans. I want you to go and attempt to argue the opposite side and vice versa. And I want you to do some research and I want to see if you can convince yourself differently. Of course, it's just an activity, but it's gonna, it's going to make you more aware of your opinions and your your beliefs, and and that's just that's what we have done in the class, and I think that's a great loss that we can't uh, we won't be able to do that this year. Um, the going forward, uh, if you're looking at your screen, I'm now on the. Uh, fourth slide, uh, the Cold War, we have the partitioning of Germany. Uh, basically, the Soviets, the, the way they feel about Germany is how France felt about Germany after World War One. The Soviets are going to strip Eastern Europe. Uh, if you look at that top right map of all of its resources, and they say it's payment for World War Two. They also are very adamant about not having a strong Germany. They don't want to repeat. All right. Now, if you look at the partitions, you'll see that originally it was partitioned into four parts, all right? What's going to happen, though, is that by 1949, the United States 
Britain and France believe that German economy was vital to the recovery of the world, of Europe. You know, think of what happened when so many reparations were put on a failing Germany after World War I. So this actually makes good sense. So in 1949, uh, Western Germany became an independent country, and it was called the Federal Republic of Germany. And the president was Konrad Adenauer. Um, and then on the east, we have the Democratic Republic of Germany, um, Eastern Germany, and Walter Obright, and he was heavily puppeted, controlled by Moscow. Um, very, very important. I want you to look at that map, and I want you to look at Berlin. If you don't know where Berlin is, take your finger, go to red, and you see that colorful little dot in the center of the red sector. So important because we have the creation of the Berlin Wall, the Berlin Airlift. Very, very important. So I need you, need you to make a note of that in your notes. Policy of containment. This is going to be America's international policy throughout the entirety of the Cold War. Basically, when you think of, you know, if you're going to bring soup to, to school, let's say we're going back to school. Can't wait for that day, by the way. You're going to put your soup in a container, not a bag, because it's going to contain, it's going to keep it. All right. So there was a U.S. ambassador to the USSR. His name is George Kennan. And he wrote this like hella long memo to Truman in 1946, basically saying that the USSR was out to destroy, disrupt American life. And so policy of containment was born. And basically we would do anything and everything to contain, 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 contain communism. And that is so incredibly important for our next couple of weeks together, because basically every single international decision that the United States makes falls back on the policy of containment. Do we get involved in that civil war? Well, do we need to contain communism? Then yes. Do we pump money into this country? Well, will that prevent the spread of communism? Then yes. You see, you see where I'm going with this? Um, Almost immediately, um, our first plan, uh, economic plan, was known as the Marshall Plan. And this was a massive financial aid package. It was about $13 billion to help war-torn Europe. This should sound familiar from World War I. Um, but big picture, policy of containment, it's to prevent communism from spreading in economically devastated regions. Think of what makes communism so attractive, right? War-torn economies, economies that are total crap right? This is referred to as an economic miracle. Now, fun fact, I need you to make a note of this. Stalin was offered money from this um, plan. He turned it down because he saw it as us trying to infiltrate Soviet Russia. All right. And I'm looking at that time and I apologize. Last but not least, what this part of the economic miracle it's going to usher in is known as this Western Renaissance and Western Europe. You see the bottom graph, this pumping in of an insane amount of money. And we're going to have a new political party that emerged in Western Europe. It's called the Christian Democrat Party, and it's the dominant political movement. And basically, they, the political party, is, they saw a common, uh, commonality of Christianity and their European heritage, and they rejected authoritarianism. They have faith in democracy, faith in cooperation, and basically the, the platform is social reform and just complete political um, transformation. I give you two examples. Charles de Gaulle of France. We've talked about him. Christian uh, Conrad Adenauer of Western Germany. Um, but basically they are, uh, um, the goal is to move these European countries. And there are plenty more of those. Those are just names I knew you would recognize. Rapid economic progress into the 60s from the Marshall Plan 
Also, a lot of these countries move towards a social welfare state where there's the um, government is going to um, really focus on full employment, a strong currency, a strong economy. Um, lastly, what I'd like to finish with is um, females and the counterculture. Um, for females, um, in addition to suffrage following World War One, females are staying outside of the house, part of this booming economy. Um, and there is this shift away from male dominated roles. Obviously, you know, it's not perfect yet, but it is, it is a shift also access to education, um, counterculture. Um, these are, this is the generation born after world war one. Um, they're also, this is in the 1950s. So people born in the 1950s, maybe your grandparents, not quite sure where y'all's parents, grandparents fall in the age, maybe great grandparents don't know, but they're, this is the beat generation, generation, um, drugs, um, um, partying, uh, the pill came out, birth control pill came out in 1960s. Um, young people are living together, um, that are not married. Um, there's also an international counterculture. There's mass communications. It's easy to travel. Um, this this group of people also are known as the baby boomers, right? They're making new babies because war just ended. Um, and with this huge economy in Western Europe, as in America, there's money. Young people, y'all's age, a little bit older than y'all, they have money. They have this this ability to be consumers, right? And get whatever they want. Um, there's also a huge increase of students going to colleges and universities, and um, there's also um, students are going to start challenging professors, which is um, a new thing. And just one last thing, and I know I'm, I've gone way over, but um, my husband was around for y'all's last Zoom, and he was like, "God, that's so different from when you know when we were in school." And basically, back in, I mean, I'm not that old, but back in the day, you know, it, it was the teacher talked the entire time. And I know I'm clearly talking a lot right now, but hearing, hearing y'all discuss and debate and challenge each other and challenge me, fact check me. I just think that's fantastic. And that really starts in the fifties. So that's, that is your introduction to the cold war. I hope you're happy. I hope that this wasn't too, too long. I apologize for its length. Uh, just imagine if we were in the classroom, good morning. Anyway, um, let me know how this was and make good choices.